Welcome to your success tonic. If you're ready to explore what it would mean to step into your boldest, most exciting vision of success, then you're in the right place. Welcome to your success tonic. I am looking forward to my conversation with Valerie Mayen on the podcast today. Valerie is the owner of Yellow Cake Shop, which is a handmade clothing brand. Yellow Cake Shop is dedicated to producing high quality, luxury, handcrafted garments within the United States. And they're specifically designed for the everyday working woman. So Valerie's brand takes pride in its commitment to creating ethically and socially responsible clothing items. So we're going to dive into that, into the world of slow fashion, entrepreneurship, and empowerment generally. So welcome, Valerie. So glad you're here. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So Valerie, I'm wondering if you can tell us what inspired you to start a slow fashion brand that prioritizes sustainability. Yeah, you know, it kind of, I would say it was uh, equal parts happenstance and equal parts uh, curiosity. Um, when I first started making clothes, my way to fashion was a little bit, it took a little bit longer. I actually started my creative journey as an illustrator. That's what brought me to Cleveland and took me to other art schools throughout the country. But I was intimidated by fashion, so I never pursued it until finally I got tired of, um, I was a bartender and I worked at a retail shop and I was good at putting things together. And uh, so a lot of women would ask me at this this bar that I worked at, you know, if I made the clothes that I was wearing and I just got tired of saying no. And so I decided to to learn. And what inspired me to really pursue the slow fashion part of our industry, which, you know, is, is much smaller than the fast fashion sector. Yeah. When I was researching, you know, how to I, I knew how to sew enough, but I was researching how to scale or how to hire other sewers and you know, I thought that the next thing to do was to find a, a CMT, which is like a cut, make and trim shop, right? A factory to produce my goods so that I could then sell it wherever to anyone who would buy it. Yeah. And I came across this woman named Kathleen Fasanella. She has a blog called fashionincubator.com. So it has to have a hyphen in between fashion and incubator. If you don't put the hyphen, it takes you to a completely different website. Right. <laughs> I found her. She's a woman that lives in New Mexico. She's a genius pattern maker. Um, and she's, she's on the spectrum. She has Asperger's. So it, I think it lends itself to her pattern making pretty well. Um, and she has this blog that talks about slow fashion, um, you know, small batch production, employing your neighbors when you have more time than money, use your time until you can afford to outsource. It's just, it was a whole new way of thinking that I hadn't thought of. So she's really the one who inspired me to go into the slow fashion movement. And that really piqued my curiosity to learn more about it. I love that. I love how these um these encounters you know there's there's just this one connection that can help you kind of it everything changes based on that conversation you know and that that exchange of ideas it's so so powerful mm -hmm. um but what what challenges have you faced in sourcing sustainable materials yeah that's definitely the hard part you know for me once I learned from Kathleen what I, I learned to kind of get start my way in the industry, um, you know, I, I come from a very traditional, very conservative Latin American family. I'm not conservative myself, but I come from that background. Right. So it was always assumed for me that I would either become a teacher, or a doctor, or a lawyer, or have a typical job, right? Or I would marry well and be a mom and stay at home. But I wanted to go into creative in industry and I, I was very conflicted because 
you know, I always felt like fashion was um, a very shallow and self-glorifying industry, but learning about slow fashion, how you can really benefit, you know, your neighbors and do things ethically and responsibly and move the needle um, in a positive direction. For me, that, that really motivated me. So I felt like I was still making an impact without, you know, um, wasting my life, I guess. But the hard part is definitely the sourcing and the sustainability of a sustainable quote unquote fashion brand. Because, you know, most consumers, especially in America, are conditioned to think that $5 for a t-shirt is normal, that, you know, 40 bucks for a dress is fine. And, and it just isn't, you know, a lot of people don't know or don't care to know or don't want to know what, how their clothes are really made, you know, how it contributes to the, it's the number one of the number one pollutants in the world. Yes. You know? yeah. So, you know, that, that's the hard part is not just sourcing the materials, but sourcing the goods to be, to be competitive, to be able to sustain your business. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And then, you know, and in this, um, in a world where there isn't a lot of awareness around what you're doing, that must be extra hard. Is there, um, do you, you know, what do you do to communicate the importance of sustainability to your customers and potential customers to encourage them, you know, to make these conscious choices? Yeah, we do our best to connect with our consumers or our clients we call yeah. it, um, on, on what, what matters to them, right? You know, what's important to them? Because when you, at the end of the day, as much as you want to believe that they care where it's made and they care who makes it and they care, you know, that, you know, like, I think there's that episode in Portlandia where they ask about the chicken if the chicken was farm raised and was it happy and you know like as much as we want to believe people care about those things it's a very small percentage that does most people are motivated by how it makes them feel and how much it costs right so for us we really try to add value by showing them a this can make you feel confident and you can kick ass at work and b even though it costs a premium initially, you're going to get X amount of dollars per wear, right? And so the the long term sustainability, in, as it uh, you know pertains to your pocketbook or your bank account, is much better than buying cheap shit from H and M or Costco or Forever Twenty One, right. Zara, wherever. So so yeah, that's it's it's a struggle. It's always a struggle. Course, and yeah. At the end of the day, when you think about it, any brand that's making anything that's contributing to the heap is really not sustainable. You know, none right. of us really are sustainable, but maybe we're doing a better job of it. You know, we're just, we're all contributing to the pile, even if we're right. upside stuff, you know? So um, yeah. as much as we want to consider ourselves the greenest of green, there, there's, it's, I think I try really hard to maintain communication with our clients that we're all about being realists, right? I'm not yes. a purist, I'm not an idealist, I'm a realist. Like what's, what's practical, what's approachable, what can we actually do? Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful distinction. You know, it's it's uh, it's easy to get caught up in the idealism and to get, especially in the marketing of a brand. You know that it can get it can get kind of um, the story can kind of get uh, amplified in ways that maybe aren't always um, you know grounded in in what in the real challenges that we have to face. Um, so. I'm really curious about your creative process. You know, you described this this journey that brought you eventually back to you know your your dream. So tell tell me more about your creative process and how you come up with new ideas. 
Sure. Yeah, this is really fun for me. I mean, some people might not see it as fun. I think a lot of people assume that fashion designers, we, you know, it's, it's like the devil wears Prada kind of, you know, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. in Manhattan and we make drawings and we boss people around and we send them away. And then we get to do all these fashion shows and rub elbows with celebrities. So for me, what yeah. I do is nothing like that, but I still love it just as much. I think there is a small part of me that would love that kind of life, but I really love the one I've carved out for myself. So um, I started making clothes. I have this story I always tell people. And um, I was I was maybe one year away from graduating in art school. I was in college. It was dead of winter here in Cleveland. Um, I'd only been living here for maybe two years. And I had, the only coat I had was this really awful North Face 1985 puffer coat that my mom bought me at Goodwill. And I had a date with this like super hot guy. He was like the hottest guy I ever dated. And I went to like the mall and I bought this super cute, I went to Charlotte Russe so of all places, you know, ironically. And I bought myself this like tube top and these cute pants and I was looking, I looked amazing. But then I had to wear my jacket and I put it on, I got in the car and the jacket was so puffy that it like literally puffed up around me when I'm sitting yeah. there. And so I felt ridiculous. I That's not a good feeling. Yeah, and I had to wear it for most of the date, you know, because we were walking to the restaurant. We were So I, I kept telling myself like, there has to be a coat that I could wear that I wouldn't feel this dumb and ridiculous and I would feel much more stylish in. And so I started making coats. That was that was really how I started making, getting into fashion in general. I made coats. I read a book by Manolo Blahnik, you know, the, the famous shoe designer. And he was actually in theater and in costuming before he became Manolo Blahnik. And his mentor told him, you know, find one thing that you love and become the master of that thing. And I that's how you that. Well, for me, it was coats. You know, I live in Cleveland and women here will justify the expense of a coat they'll justify paying you know hundreds of dollars for a coat than they will before they justify spending that much on a dress or a top or pants because the coat that's like a purse that you can wear right and they know they'll get more wear use out of it as utility so it, i i like to marry the things like style and fashion with function and sellability and you know function you know it's just it's, it's the practical mm -hmm. nature of you know, so, you know, how's it going to live in the world? Um, how yeah. are you going to get in front of it? Uh, is it going to be a bother when you're sitting down on a subway or in a car? Uh, how many pockets are there? And, you know, what would you need them for? Your phone or your keys or your pocketbook or your kids stuff, you know? So I really think about a lot of that when I'm creating and designing. And that's probably the favorite part of my process because most women will tell you, you know, a big selling point for them is pockets, right? It's like yeah. a simple pocket. <laughs> A lot of our garments, actually all of our garments, except for one dress has pockets and it's a minimum of two, maximum of five. And a lot of women's clothing don't, they don't have pockets in them because A, uh, each seam will affect the bottom line. You know, you're, it's most stores charged by the seam um, and most fashion companies are uh, managed by men. And, you know, women's clothing didn't have pockets back in the day. It started because men wanted to control women. They didn't want women to have access to things on their person. So, you know, it, you look at little kids' pants, like little boys' pants, even little boys' pants have pockets. But there's a lot of women's clothing that doesn't. Uh -huh. And I think for me, that's a big, a big part of how I design is thinking of how it's going to live in the world and who's going to use it. Yeah. I love that because I think you're absolutely spot on. There are so many things that so many garments are not designed with lifestyle in mind, you know, the lifestyle of the person who's going to use it or wear it. Um, 
And when you do have that piece of clothing that does meet that, you're like, oh, this pocket's perfect. My phone fits just right or whatever it is. You know, it's just like, so you love that piece of clothing, right? You just you can't, can't stop wearing it. <laughs> yeah, it's like when you wear that pair of pants that you haven't worn for a while because you're like, oh, I should wear these. I haven't worn them in forever. And then you do and you realize they don't have pockets and you're like, I remember why I never wore yeah. these. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I mean, I, so we've talked about some of the challenges that you faced uh, in this journey. And I'm wondering, you know, what what would you say might be the biggest challenge that you faced in your career so far? Oh, man, that's a really good question. Um, and because there's so many challenges. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, well, I mean, aside from the IRS seemingly taking all of our money, I would say the biggest challenge has been funding uh, and, you know, just really moving the needle uh, forward on your business as a woman. Yeah. Um, and especially, you know, luckily or unluckily, I've often, I did, you know, I'm Latin American. I love my heritage, um, but I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. You know, my dad was a home builder and lucky for us, he was building homes in a really nice area. We were able to afford to live there, even though we didn't really have the same status or bank account as our neighbors. Um, so, you know, we, we spoke Spanish in our home up until a certain point. My dad didn't want us being held back in school because of our accents. So, you know, we stopped speaking Spanish in the home. We, we assimilated very quickly. And, you know, some people don't know who or what I am, right? They think I'm very white passing. I could be Italian or Hawaiian or, you know, any number of things. Um, so I sound like a white girl, right? So I think that has helped me, I guess, you know, to, to maybe avoid some kind of discrimination that I know a lot of my aunts and my tias and tios and my cousins maybe have faced. Um, but I think more than anything, being a woman in general, you know, my husband was able to qualify for loans that I couldn't qualify for, even though I have more money in my in my bank account than he does, even though I've been in business longer than he's worked at his job. And so, you know, it, it may just be the luck of the draw, or it could be, you know, gender discrimination, or it could be a number of things. But I think for a lot of small businesses that are my size, it is difficult to grow to, you know, um, the level of some other big brands that have really skyrocketed and uh, not having a business degree, you know, doesn't, it, I think a lot of what I've learned, I've learned through trial and error, through books, through, you know, mm -hmm. um, learning from others. But yeah, if, I think if I had the, the credentials, or if I had the, the, the means to go to Harvard business school or to get an MBA, you know, I think, I think maybe my situation might be different. So those challenges are very prevalent. I, and I've seen that a lot with women of color in general. You know, I, I mentor a few female-owned businesses that are run by women of color. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I'm seeing with them is that their products are outstanding. And when I find a brand or a business that's similar to theirs and it's, it's owned by someone from the dominant paradigm, their visibility and their growth is very different. And it could be access to resources. And it also could be access to knowledge. And they just don't know what they don't know. And I think some of that really... Is, is what happened to me in the first seven years of my business. Mm -hmm. So I think hopefully now that I've got access to some tools I didn't have before, I'm I'm shouting it from the rooftops and I'm doing my best to bring everyone into the fold that I can. Yeah, I think that that's really so important what you're doing. And I just want to, you know, celebrate what you're doing because it's so, so important to raise others alongside us as we're moving forward in our journey. and helping people who do not have access to all the resources or who are encountering bias or discrimination. It's just, 
it's so important, you know, just to try to to give more hope, spread more hope, and and allow people to flourish. You know, really, it's 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 crucial. Yeah. Um. So, do you would you have uh, any insights or advice that you would share with a young aspiring woman of color entrepreneur who's who's thinking of doing something similar to you in in fashion? Sure. Yeah. I would say, first of all, don't go at it alone. You know, for me personally, when I started my business, I just assumed that I had to do everything myself because, you know, I was my best resource and I didn't know I could afford employees until much later in my business. I was, I think for me, I was living kind of an immigrant mentality and scarcity mode, you know, Um, but also there's, there's so many resources around us now that weren't available to a lot of women, even 10 years ago Um, here in Cleveland, you know, there's, I mean, I could swing a dead cat and hit a small business incubator program. You know, there's so many of them. And the one that I worked with, I I worked with a couple, you know, they're not all, um, you know, they're not all great. They're not all built the same, but the the one that I finally landed upon, it was really, really impactful for me. And it really helped me see parts of my business that I didn't understand before, but it also helped me to see what my business was capable of, you know? Um, I always believed that because I was a woman and a woman of color and a small business, I just figured I would always just be small, right? I would, my business would make enough money to pay employees and pay the expenses. And maybe I could get my nails done every other month, you know, and that was enough for me, but I didn't aim for more because I didn't know I could achieve more. It wasn't until I started seeing other women that looked like me and, you know, black and brown women doing bigger things, doing things that rich white men do. And it, it really inspired me to try things I hadn't tried before. Like I, I just bought a building this past April, right? And and everyone told me that I couldn't. And, you know, I, I live in a neighborhood that used to be very questionable and a little sketch and super cheap to live in. And over the last 10 years, it's become very affluent and there's half a million dollar condos next to a street where you could get shot. Like it's, it's bizarre, but yeah. this neighborhood is expensive. And a lot of people told me, like they literally laughed in my face and said, I couldn't buy a building in this neighborhood. And they said, you should go to Clark Fulton or go to Parma or go to, you know, old Brooklyn. It's, these are all places that are fine and good for other people, but they're not where I know my business can thrive and the businesses I want to bring here can thrive. And we did it. It took me two years, but I did it. And I would have never thought I could if I hadn't seen these examples of other women doing something similar or greater. So I think what I would say to young designers is, Obviously, don't get ahead of yourself, right? Don't put the horse before the cart or the cart before the horse. I forget how that one goes. Yeah. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I would say, don't get ahead of yourself. Take your time, right? But access the resources around you. There's most likely free or near free or low cost initiatives like small business incubators, especially for women, grants if you can get them. But also, mm-hmm. I'll tell you this much too, and this might sound salesy, I promise you it's not, but investing your money is so important. I just, I had a mentor a couple years ago during COVID who mentioned to me, you know, we, we happened to do really well during COVID and we made a lot of money that year um, and we had more than I am used to. And so he said, you know, you should invest some of that money. And I'd never considered that because it seemed, investing just seemed so over my head. It was something that I just never thought was for me as a woman who didn't really, wasn't great with numbers. Why would I invest, right? That's for, again, rich white guys on Wall Street, right? That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. But there are so many resources now for women and podcasts and books that are teaching women specifically how to invest, how to manage your money, how to grow your wealth, because we can't save our way to wealth and we can't work ourselves sick to wealth. And it, 
the, the sooner you start investing, the better. I wish I started investing 20 years ago. I'd have a million dollars by now with compound interest. Yeah. So it, it sounds salesy and it sounds weird and it sounds scary, but there's so the girls that invest is a book that I read. Um, they have a podcast too. And I love them. This girl, Sim, she's 25 and she's a millionaire because her parents taught her how to invest when she was 12. And <sighs> so I think that's important for young designers to know if you, if access to capital and funding is difficult, start investing your money now. And it doesn't have to be a lot. It could be $5 a week, anything really just start. And um, yeah, don't, don't be afraid to ask for help. Mm. So many pearls of wisdom there, Valerie. Thank you so oh much. Great advice. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Um, I, yeah, reaching out for help and being in a mastermind or incubator kind of experience where you have other people doing things that you haven't even thought of yet uh, is so expensive. That was definitely my experience too. <clears throat> and one of the reasons why I, uh, run my own group programs because I know just what what the possibilities are and the transformations that are on the other side of that which are life-changing like buying a building you know congratulations that's incredible yeah it's crazy I mean it's, there's a lot we have a big road ahead of us but we've already got you know a few other tenants coming into the building so we're making it a multi-purpose space and 85 percent of the businesses we have coming in are owned by women of color and in this neighborhood, a lot of the businesses are run by people from the dominant paradigm. And the majority of the real estate is owned by rich white men. Mm. So I'm, I'm only a co-owner of the building because I, I had to have an investor. Mm -hmm. um, no way I could do it otherwise. But I'm still, it's, it's still a start. It's a, you know, I'd rather have a small piece of a watermelon than a, a big piece of a grape. And so I'm excited to start here and hopefully it will grow. And, and you know, who knows? Um, but I, I want to bring anyone I can along for the ride. Oh. So yeah, I'm excited. Amazing. Um, and so, yeah, let's switching gears a little bit. Um, well, before we started recording, you mentioned that there are some toys behind you. Um, <laughs> and I, so I want to ask you if you'd be willing to share, you know, how you balance the demands of running a business and up-leveling the way you've described while being a mother. Yeah, it's super hard. It's so, so fucking hard. Yeah. Um, Okay. It's the I've ever done. And you know, I, I have two kids. I love both my children equally. I was not prepared to be a mom of two children. I, I honestly, if, if I'm being honest as a woman, I don't feel guilty saying this now, but I did before. I would have been content with just one child. Um, but we had a second one and she's here now and I love her. I love her incredibly. Um, but you know, I think for me, balancing things as a mom, people say the work-life balance is unattainable, and I don't disagree. However, I'll say this with a caveat that, you know, I've been reading a shit ton of books lately or listening, I guess I should say, I love listening to books. Uh -huh. I've been to a lot of books by Michael Hyatt and he runs this business with his uh, daughter-in-law. Yeah. It's called the full focus plan, right? And it sounds ridiculous. It sounds really salesy and super basic, but as a person with ADHD and a mom and a person that's busy, this, this is probably one of the first planners I've ever had that really helps me to to prioritize my day and not get distracted with all the things, right? So yeah. it forces you to only pick three things a day that you're gonna work on. Because most entrepreneurs, they work, they make their lists like miles long. Yeah. I'm guilty of the same thing. And yeah. sometimes I'll write things in a planner and I'll put it in my phone and I'll put it in three places and I'll forget it or I'll forget yeah. what I put. Yeah. So I, I love this planner. It's it's I bought it for all my employees. I I love it. Um and I I literally was crying the other day when I was making a schedule. I was talking to my husband and I was like, I'm so excited that this is actually helping me with my ADHD because that's been my biggest challenge. Yeah. Um, 
But I think, you know, from, from reading his books and working with his planner, I think a work-life ba balance is attainable. It just might not always feel balanced, you know, and, mm -hmm. and a lot of um, unlearning and a lot of persistence and a lot of hard work. I don't have that right now. I, I definitely have the propensity to do too much. I, I love being busy. I love working. And, you know, in the last few years, I've definitely had a fire under my ass to really find ways to grow wealth for my family. You know, my parents, you know, they didn't leave my sisters and I, we don't have an inheritance. We don't have any money. We don't have anything to inherit from them. Um, you know, so I don't have any generational wealth in my family to live off of or to pass on. And I want to build that for my girls. And so I'm doing that in the ways that I've learned to know how. So I'm, I'm fixing my basement to Airbnb in my house. And I, you know, bought another property and we're going to, you know, renovate that and live there and you know, short-term rental, our whole house here because we have a good location and I got this building now and I'll have tenants there. So I'm I'm doing the best that I can to really prepare myself for uh, a long-term benefit, but it's, it's definitely not easy. You know, um, they always say it takes a village and it definitely does. You know, we've got friends of my daughter's, you know, school that, you know, we, we, we help each other with pickups during the summer for summer camp and we'll have play dates at each other's houses so that one of us can get a break during the week, you know, um, and that's helpful. But uh you know, I, I go to bed later than I'd like to, and I wake up later than I'd like to, and I don't work out as often as I'd like to. So that's kind of how I manage. I manage by not really always managing best. You know, that's that's where I'm at now, but I'm also doing what I can to educate myself and train myself in ways that I can do better. I think a lot of entrepreneurs think that working more is best, but sometimes working less is gonna give you the restorative time that you need to be able to work more productively at your job the next day. So you don't have yeah. to work the work as long. Um, we're actually going to be initiating a four-day work week with my at my with my team um, after we've onboarded these two employees. So after three months of a new employee onboarding, they get the opportunity to do a four-day work week. And we did we give it a one-month trial. And if productivity isn't affected and we do well and we can still maintain efficiency, then we keep it at a four-day work week. And it's you know kind of like that mindset, right? Like the, the job takes the time allotted, right? When you think about like, when you go out and you take a purse with you, if you have your big purse, you fill it with a ton of shit and it's super uh -huh. heavy. <laughs> you have a little purse, you need to go out, you fill it with your lip gloss and your phone and your wallet and that's it, right? So, you know, the job takes the time allotted and, and studies have shown that people that do four day work weeks, they get more done because they fit it in the, the shorter time frame and they have a longer weekend to look forward to and they're, they're much more restored. So- mm. It's hard to do. It's scary yes. as fuck, and it's it feels backwards. But I think that's the way that we're going to be able to achieve the balance that we're looking for. So, get back to me in six months, and we'll see where we're at. Yes, I will. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear about this four four day work week, which sounds amazing. Definitely something I'm working towards as well. And I do think that the the idea of work life balance is sometimes the idea in itself is a lot of pressure. Because I think there are times when one is just going to take precedence over the other, right? There's just going to be times when you just need to pour into your family and the work has to take, you know, just take less less of your time. And then the other way around, there's going to be times when the work has just got to be the thing. And, and, and the idea that we have to have it all perfectly balanced is another way that we beat ourselves up. So I think you're Great. doing an amazing job. <laughs> I am literally trying. I'm doing all of, I'm doing the most. Out here. I can tell. I can tell. Um, so before we wrap up, I want to ask you the question I ask my guests is, and that is, how has your definition of success evolved over time? 
That's such a good question, man. I'm like, how much time do we have to talk about this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just started working with a business coach last November. You know, I, I had a hard time finding one that I trusted. They all seemed mm-hmm. kind of like scammy to me. Yeah. And I found one that recommended and, and he's great. He's pretty good. He had me do in our second session, he had me do this thing called your ideal day, right? And so mm-hmm. he had me write down on paper as long as I wanted what my ideal day would look like in five years, right? And and he yeah. said, make it make it so detailed, like, what do you eat for breakfast? What are you wearing in the morning? Oh, what yeah. time you go to bed? Like really detailed. And when I wrote it down and I read it back to myself, I really believed it. And mm-hmm. when I thought about those things before, I was like, man, those things feel so far off. Those, they're never going to happen. But when I read it and I wrote it, I was like, holy shit, this sounds amazing. This, this could happen, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah, my idea of success now looks very different. I think before, before I had kids, it was like, my idea of success was keep my business open long enough to be able to maybe afford a nicer place and nicer clothes and, you know, fancier dinners out. Right. That was my level of success. <laughs> then my next level of success was, okay, I want to be successful enough to be uh, memorable and to be, you know, visible nationwide and to be a household name. And then my level of success was like, you know what? Screw that. I don't care if people know me. I just want to have enough money to retire early. I want to have enough money to leave my kids something so that they can either, you know, use it for college, use it to buy a house, use it to start their own business, what have you. Um, And I want to have options. You know, I think a lot of women were taught to think that money is bad. Like if we want money for ourselves, we're a gold digger. Or if we want to be millionaires, we want to be wealthy, that's evil, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. We we want money will allow us to leave a relationship that doesn't suit us. Money will allow us to leave a job that doesn't serve us. Money will allow us to be able to fix our leaky roof and also still buy our groceries. You know, money will give us options. It will allow us to take vacations we couldn't afford, so we can have time with our families, so we can rest our bodies. They'll allow us to have the clothes that fit us best. You know, and I don't think that's bad or wrong. So, for me, I'm. My level of success now is taking control of my financial freedom and my financial mm-hmm. literacy because that's something my mother never really had. And it kept her in situations that I think really didn't serve her. So so yeah, my level of success is being able to retire, hopefully it before 66. And maybe I'll get a boob job. I don't know. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I to my kids and my boobs yeah. are like whatever so you want, right? Cool. You can have whatever yeah. you want. Yeah. And I used to think that that was also wrong, but like, who cares? You know, it's your body. Do what you want. If you're not hurting anyone. So yeah, I'm going to do me. That sounds so cheesy and so typical, like YOLO. Right. But like, I am, I'm just going to do me. What's best for me and my family. And if I can bring others along the way, I will do it. If I can create opportunities for other women of color, hell yeah. And if I can have a seat at the table to make change where it really counts, you better believe it. And I think the way I'm going to get there is through building wealth for my family. Uh, Mic drop moment there, Valerie. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. I, I just love it because I think that empowered, financially empowered women are able to do so much more and help others, you know, other women too. And empowered women empower entire communities. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is important, deeply, right. deeply important work we yeah. are doing. And you know what someone taught me that I really loved? Um, someone told me that, you know, empowerment is a tricky thing, right? Because empowerment, the word itself connotates that that someone else had to give you that power. But sometimes, some instances, we we acquire that power on our own or we seek it out ourselves, right? 
And so someone was like, maybe the better word for women to use is emboldening. It doesn't mm -hmm. roll off the tongue as easily. It has more syllables, right? But if I can embolden someone to empower themselves or embolden someone to be inspired to action, that to me sounds kick-ass. Like I, yeah. I love that. I think I, I really hope that that's something that women can can understand for themselves more is that we can embolden others and ourselves. And so we don't mm -hmm. have to wait someone else to empower us or someone else to give us that power we just have to have the inspiration and the the desire to do it yeah absolutely yeah inspiration is such a big part of that kind of activating of the power within for sure yeah so thank you Valerie for being here today and sharing your wisdom and your experiences with us and I want uh, to ask you how can listeners find you online Sure they can find us uh, on Instagram on Facebook and our website you can search us on Instagram just by looking up yellow cake shop just like the dessert it's the american spelling not the british spelling so it's one p at the end so yellow cake all one word and then s h o p it's all one word just like okay. it's grammar. And then uh, on Facebook, we're at Yellow Cake Shop, CLE, CLE for Cleveland. And um, our website, yellowcakeshop.com. So yeah, you can email us, DM us, send us a smoke signal. We will answer you. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Valerie. I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day and go out and make more amazing things happen. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here. Hey, have you taken the Success Archetype quiz yet? If not, head on over to storytonic.co to take the quiz and discover how to leverage your unique profile to step into your next vision of success.